the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins. We're glad you joined us on this Friday afternoon. Happy Friday, man. It feels like spring is close. Like it's, <laughs> like it's almost here. I'm skeptical. I'm always forever skeptical. You like got that one more snowstorm in us? Until it's July, I won't allow myself to enjoy it. <laughs> in June, you're like, I know that snow is coming. <laughs> right, right. You I never know. know. It's coming. <laughs> oh. Uh, just uh, some particulars. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find old shows at 1160hope.com. Uh, you can also find us wherever it is you find your podcast. And you can text us now. Text the show at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG uh, and then leave a comment, a question, whatever it is you want to talk about. Uh, well, if you've been watching the news lately, uh, you know that there's all that big flap going on about Tucker Carlson right now at Fox News. You, you big Fox, big flap going big on. Big flap. It's a big flap. Yeah. You you big you big Fox News guy. No, com- no comment. <laughs> I just wanted to see how you answered that question. <laughs> nice. So Tucker Carlson has been uh, kind of been raked over the coals over the last week or two, rightfully so, uh, for for past things that he said. But uh, it was <laughs> now that we're radio guys, I laughed because it was. It was things he said on a past radio show, like one of those morning radio shows sure. where it's like you're supposed to be as crazy as possible. And he said stuff that probably back then was no good, but certainly now is no good in the environment that we live in. Uh, and a lot of this has been brought up by this thing called Media Matters. Media Matters is run by name by Angelo Coruson, uh, and they've been currently leading a boycott campaign against Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Hmm. Uh, in an attempt to get him fired. Like, he's in their crosshairs. They're going at so him. So that's, that's the goal is getting, getting him fired. Get him fired. Got it. So media matters. As you, you know, everything is left or right in our culture now. So media matters, very left. So if this was an MSNBC guy, say, these uh, wouldn't okay. be the people going after him. It would be a right-wing thing that's going after them, right? Got it. So Got it. media matters is going after them. But what always happens in this uh, is that the guy or the people who are doing the rock throwing <laughs> end up, uh, having stuff in their own past. Yeah, no kidding. And that is the inevitable part of the story that just came out. Uh, so we won't use the words that he used, but the president of Media Matters, now this other side came in and has now found things from a now defunct blog that he wrote uh, with a lot of like uh, racial overtones, a lot of uh, homophobic overtones. Oh, and now it's it's coming back at him. And I, 
it is like the best microcosm of our culture, our political culture right here, because everybody, it seems like, has this dirt in their background. Right, right, right. And, like, I don't even know why any of these people throw the stones in the first place going, well, I'm going to get out there and then, oh, wait a minute, I know this is what's coming my way. So I don't know whether to laugh or be angry at this story. It just is, to me, I bring it up because it is such a microcosm of our of, of the culture that we live in. Yeah, and it's it's murky, too, because it's one thing to throw stones. It's another thing to hold accountable, though, right? So I'm going to say something probably pretty unpopular. Yes. You do, just because you have dirt in your past, doesn't make you unqualified to hold anyone else accountable, right? Agreed. So so it's, it does Agreed. sometimes feel like, oh, because I said something inappropriate on Twitter 10 years ago, I can't ever call someone else out in the present for saying something inappropriate. Yep. I've grown. I'm a different... You know, I'm not, I'm not confessing personally. Yeah. I'm just saying we. It, it is one thing to say, hey, if you've done anything wrong ever, don't talk to anybody else about yep. what they're doing wrong. Like, okay, so this feels a little more inflammatory than what I just explained. Yep. This seems more than just yeah. like good, healthy accountability. It does feel like you said rock throwing. And that is kind of the crazy irony because the church is not only um, as bad, but in some cases worse than we have, you know, just in the last 30 years, some pretty public examples of pastors who would really publicly lay into a certain sin. Yes, come to find out that actually was their vice. Like not just like not all, not uh, infrequently. It felt like all the time, right? <laughs> Which I, maybe this is like a really uh, humanistic way of looking at it. If I know in the back of my mind that's actually a big thing that I really struggle with, subconsciously I don't ever want to publicly talk about it. For fear that I would get caught, like that—that's what blows my mind. Yeah. These people that like publicly rail on somebody while secretly having all this dirt that eventually gets found out. You're like, why that thing? Like, yeah. why? I just wonder if a good psychologist would say they want to get caught. <laughs> like, yeah, they, I wonder. I don't always buy to. that. I mean, I, there probably is some of that, especially for these like mega celebrities. Like, there is a, a certain risk, danger, thrill, yeah, part of it. But like, I. These stories are surprising me less and less. Like, hey, that really loudmouth politician, turns out they have dirt. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course, of course they do. Of, not, of course they do. Or not the loudmouth politician. This guy literally runs a company That's that a digs point. up dirt That's on people point. and throws off. But I do like how I do like how you spun it towards the church. Because this this is almost a caricature of our culture. Yeah. Right? Like this is everything bad about our culture. You've got the Fox News host who says all this crazy stuff. Like it's paid to say crazy stuff. And, have, of course, has crazy stuff in his background. But then the left-wing guy, who also is paid to say crazy stuff, you know, going back and forth. It's just crazy. How many times can I use the word crazy? <laughs> um, but so I do, do want to spin it towards the church. You did it a little bit, but I want, I want you to flesh it out a little bit. What I think might be one of the more uh, confusing things that Jesus ever said, I almost said misinterpreted, but I think just confusing is the... Uh, if you've got a you know a log in your own eye, then don't point yeah. out the speck in the other guy's eye. And basically, we spin that towards you have no right because you're not perfect. Right, 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 so right. you have no right to ever say tell anybody, hey, uh, have you thought about this? What about that? Uh, what are your thoughts about that verse and just <laughs> judgment? Uh, uh, oh, man, <laughs> or the place of judgment within the church and. And uh, what is, when is it healthy? When is it out of bounds? Uh, okay, so first off, I think you can model judgment without being judgmental. Oh, I think that's good. a really important distinction. That is good. I think you can show discernment without being judgmental. I think there are other categories. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the week that sometimes because we feel that we have the truth that our methodology doesn't matter. Like, mm-hmm. hey, if I'm right, I'm right, and who cares how I go about it? I'm like, yeah. I think 
honest, I think Jesus cares. Uh, <laughs> yes. Like maybe, maybe for me, the like point five step forward is maybe a little humility. Like, yeah. hey, I you know, it's not I struggle too, and I don't have a perfect path. Just owning even some of that. Yeah. But I think, and again, this is maybe not a really popular opinion with the whole log spec thing. I think to some degree, Jesus was being humorous. Really, I think I think it was meant to convey it, a picture. It yeah, like we always that sermon that's that verse is always preached so seriously. Yeah, picture someone with an actual plank <laughs> sticking out of their face. Yeah. It's like, hey man, you got a little sawdust in your eye. Everyone watching that would be like, well, that's ridiculous. Like that's <laughs> it would if you actually saw that scene unfold. Yeah, it'd be funny. And I think part of what Jesus's point there was what wasn't just hey, no one has a right. To speak to anyone else, because yep. there's all sorts of other accounts where Jesus yes. instructs us to hold people accountable, yep. but to sometimes see the ridiculousness of like, hey, I, and this is what I think is true for a lot of us. Sometimes when we're so buried in our own stuff, a nice distraction mm-hmm. is to go after somebody else's. And I think part of what Jesus is saying there, and again, this is just conjecture, is like, hey, what? why don't you take a look at your own house first? Yep. Like b- before we start throwing stones, like... You you're you're not as blameless in this as you might think, and uh, I don't know that I, I think that that's a that's easier said than done because gosh, it's so much easier to throw stones, isn't it? It, it really is. It really is. And uh, and when I hear that verse too, sometimes I think like when I'm going to go point something out in someone else's life, it should convict me. <laughs> like yeah, totally. tonight I'm doing premarital counseling for some people, uh, and. I, every time I do premarital counseling, it causes me to take stock of my own marriage, mm. so that. Not just telling them what to do, but what's going on in my own marriage. It's and the same with preaching, right? Preaching, People absolutely. Like in the middle of a sermon, you're like, wow, right. I'm, not, I'm not doing that yeah. thing. <laughs> so many times I'll tell people that. I'm preaching this to myself just as <laughs> yeah, much. Right. You guys can all leave, actually. This is just for me. Yeah, and I would say also when it comes, and judging's the wrong word, I think. When it comes to pointing out areas of uh, in other people's lives, pointing out things, I think that is... We say this all the time. That is best done in community. Yeah. We, we live in a culture where we like to just throw the rocks. Right. <laughs> just right, right, pelt right. them. But, but uh, almost do the work so that you've earned the right to speak deeply into people's lives instead of just, hey, this is your problem. And the person's like, hey, what about the plank in your eye? But instead they're going, oh, totally. I trust you. Totally. I know you. One of the questions that we, we encourage uh, our people to ask is to say, would this person say that I'm for them? This person that I'm going after, maybe it's a really, really difficult thing. Like, it's a really heavy thing. It's not a light conversation. But yeah. at the end of the day, with this person that I'm confronting, and confrontation is not always peaceful, right? right, right. Would this person say, that really stung, mm. but I know this person is for me. It's kind of like, um, it's good. you know, correction often feels like cutting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that we'll also say is, are you coming at them with a scalpel or a hatchet? Mm-hmm. Both cut, but only one cuts to heal. That's good. And and I think knowing that this person, because there's definitely been times where someone else is screwing up and like deep in the the saddest, most painful parts of my heart, I'm like, yes, I get to, yeah. well, I'm going to point this out to this person. Yeah. Man, that person's probably not going, like, man, Ian's for me in this moment. And that's, that, you know, that's convicting. And yeah. I think that's a good thing to keep out in front. Man, I like how we can go from Tucker Carlson and Media Matters <laughs> and after 10 minutes get it down to like, how do you, how do you biblically and, and in a helpful way point something out in someone else's life? We might have a future in this thing. <laughs> well, I like that, that laugh that just came out of you. It's time will good. tell. Well, we're rolling here on a Friday. We're glad you're joining us on The Common Good. Coming up next, we're going to have a great conversation with a man by the name of Dave Phillips. Dave Phillips is the president and the founder of the Children's Hunger Fund. That is coming up next on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. And now you can text us. As Ian and I have been joking, we're now into the 1990s, I think. Maybe the early 2000s. You can <laughs> we text made it. us. You can text us your comments at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG. And then your comment, your question, your concern, whatever it is uh, you have for us. Well, we love to have guests in the studio, Ian. And we're excited right now uh, to be joined by two men, uh, Dave Phillips and Anthony Casper. They are from the Children's Hunger Fund. Uh, so, guys, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for yeah, having thank us. You. Absolutely. Uh, Antho, Anthony is one of my fr- my good friends from my church and stuff, so I feel like I'm on the hook right now. So, Antho is a name we can all call him, though, just I to be clear. So. Outstanding. Yeah, yeah. I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> He's good with that. Why one. not ask you on air? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of background. The Children's Hunger Fund was established in 1991 by Dave Phillips. He's both the president and the founder Since then, the Children's Hunger Fund has delivered food and ultimately hope to children and families in need, both in the U.S. and around the world for 25 years. So we're really excited to get to know you guys. But Dave, as the founder uh, and the president of Children's Hunger Fund, why don't you just tell us more about it? Why did you start this? What's the goal and and what continues to be the goal today? Yeah, the reason for uh, starting it, going back to my college days, I was pursuing international banking. Hello. uh, had a chance to do some international travel after uh, graduation, and God just basically broke my heart mm. to uh, being exposed to suffering children. And through that process, over a few years, God just continued to move me uh, closer and closer to a call to do ministry full-time. And uh, I think the impetus for starting Children's Hunger Fund was really twofold. I mm. wanted to use my business experience to engage corporate America mm. and to try to direct the surplus of corporate America to the local church around the world. Wow. Uh, the second thing I was really motivated to was to use our my life to impact the next generation for Christ, mm. focusing on suffering kids, mm. but uh, also wanted to motivate the church to... Um, get outside the four walls yeah. and go out and be the hands and feet of Christ. That's awesome. Love it. And that was the motivation, never dreaming it would become what it did. But yeah. that, that's how we started. Awesome. That's fantastic. Okay, so on, on your website, it says that almost 1.3 billion people uh, around the world, more than the entire population of Africa, live on less than $1.25 a day. And, you know, we've talked about this a couple of times. Sometimes some statistics feel so overwhelming that you don't even know how to wrap your brain around them, right? Mm-hmm. You can become a little inoculated to statistics that are particularly that devastating. How do you help people actually engage with a number that big <laughs> in a way that's like practical and actually moves people to action? Well, I, I think when I started Children's Hunger Fund, I felt that same sense of being overwhelmed. Yeah, really. You can't focus on the big number. Mm-hmm. I, I have told people over the years, uh, as it relates to Children's Hunger Fund or the local church or, or anyone who's a part of the body of the Christ of Christ. You have to start with if you could just reach one. Mm, yeah. Yeah. What if you could just reach one? Mm. And we seek to help a child in need that's suffering, that's hurting, that's yeah. disadvantaged, and try to change that child's life by getting them engaged with the local church and helping them understand that the God who created this world is a personal God and loves them, wants to know, know them personally. Mm. If you can do that once, then our goal is to do that time and time and time yeah. again. Mm. And that that's the way we approach it, and I think that's the only way you can approach it. Absolutely. So I've always wondered with the, the various organizations that collect and distribute food, like it's one thing to help people understand how big the need is, you know, both, uh, uh, you know, globally, but also 
uh, in the U.S. How do you actually get the food to people? Talk to mm. us through the what's the process of how food gets into the hands of hungry children? I think that's one of the things that makes us unique is we go to corporate America and try to secure uh, truckload size donations. We also go to churches around the country and ask them to actually fill food packs for us, which is a 20-pound box of food that is all non-perishable and specifically designated to help a child or family in a particular culture. Oh, wow. Uh, once we get those boxes, then we we, work, we minister through gospel-centered churches uh, here in the U.S. and in 26 developing countries. Wow. Uh, we train those churches and the lay leaders in those church churches to engage the families in their poor community using relational strategies, wow. focusing on home delivery of food. Hmm. So that's what makes us unique. Uh, that The rationale behind that uh, model is twofold. We want to be able to tell our corporate partners or our donors that with with a high level of integrity, we can say we know almost every box goes directly to a family who's wow. in need as mm. identified by a local church. That's incredible. But secondarily, by getting into the home, there's no better way to identify what's keeping that family right. in an impoverished state until the church gets inside those four walls and finds out what's going on. Maybe mm. it's a single parent. Maybe there's disability. Maybe there's a job training mm. issue. Maybe there's a drug and alcohol issue. Whatever it is, the church can't meet that need mm-hmm. until they identify it. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Okay, so so Brian and I actually both grew up in missionary churches, and so the, the model of missions for me since I was seven was the church raises the funds, and we send people on a trip, or we partner with a Christian organization. Your methodology of partnering with corporate America, I think is absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the hurdles of that particular model of, of coming alongside corporate America, helping them catch the vision for what you're doing? Like, are there things that stand out to you? like, yeah, this is extra difficult or extra complicated given that particular approach. Uh, well, when you look at children's hunger fund, when we chose the name, it was intentional. Mm-hmm. I often get asked, why isn't Christ in our name? Oh, okay. And the rationale behind that was we wanted to engage corporate America. Right. And, uh, my rationale was, who doesn't want to feed hungry kids? Right. And so that allows me to get an audience with the CEO. Hmm. If I can get that audience, I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit that more often than not, I can convince that CEO that the church is the best distribution model that's out there. Hmm. And that God has honored that over the years. Yeah. I, I can't say that it, it hasn't been perfect. Right. Uh, right. The, the gospel is a hurdle. Yeah. The yeah. gospel yeah. is offensive. Mm-hmm. And there are corporate partners that we have worked with over the years or have chosen not to work with us. Uh, and they've said, we're ready to, to jump and be all in if you'll just change one thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do you have to work through the local church? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's changing our mission. Yeah. yeah. Right. So. Right. Good oh. for you. Well, that's fascinating. I'm curious. Uh, what do you find different? Uh, so we, we've talked to other organizations that are doing uh, this type of stuff overseas. I, I'm fascinated that you do it in the United States, too. Um, has it that always been the case? Or was this something that you just kind of saw the need? Well, there is a lot of need in our backyard right here. And maybe mm. also, how is it different overseas versus here? Mm. Uh, they're very different. Yeah. First of all, um, we started in Los Angeles. And uh, my wife and I grew up. In the San Fernando Valley, which the first 30 years of our life was a white suburb community. Mm-hmm. And then it changed to what it is today, a melting pot of minority populations. Right. And one of the desires in starting CHF was to motivate churches in our own backyard to respond to a changing community. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody was reaching the poor. Mm. How it's different from internationally, the, the level of poverty is different. Yeah. You know, we have poverty in the U.S., yeah. um, but the level of international poverty is so much more extreme. Mm. 
And uh, my personal heart uh, is global in nature. Um, but when I think of the difference that most pastors here have access to some resourcing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about pastors that are ministering in slums and villages uh, around the world, they may be incredible visionaries, but they lack the resources. Yeah. And that was a burden that I had on my heart, is if we could just resource these incredible men of God, what might God do totally, yeah. and using them to reach a community for Christ. That's awesome. Well, we're excited to have you here. We're excited that you're going to stay for another segment. So coming up next, Ian and I are going to continue talking to Dave Phillips. Uh, he is the president and the founder of the Children's Hunger Fund. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can connect with us at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can also text us at 68683, then type in CG and then your comment or your question. We're excited to be joined again uh, by Dave Phillips. He is the president and the founder of the Children's Hunger Fund, as long as long uh, alongside Anthony Casper as well. He is the director of relationship development with the Children's Hunger Fund. If, as we're talking, you're more interested in hearing more about the Children's Hunger Fund, you can go to their website. That's childrenshungerfund.org. That is childrenshungerfund.org. So, Dave, before, uh, in our last segment, you were telling us a lot of the background of the Children's Hunger Fund and and what you guys do, and you really try to mobilize churches, which I find really impressive. You try to work through the local church, uh, and, and that brings up a lot of questions. And I think the first one I have is this. Uh, are you encouraged or discouraged kind of by the um, by the compassion of the local church? Do you see that growing, more people wanting to do work in and through the local church, or, or is there some discouragement? No, the local church is kind of uh, not real interested in helping out with us. Yeah, I, I would say I'm de- encouraged. You're encouraged. Um, I've, I've been doing this for over 30 years, and I, I think— you know, my experience, particularly with working with the church in the U.S., is that uh, you have churches that are either strong on the gospel uh, proclamation mm-hmm. or they're strong on the practice uh, of exercising the gospel in their mm-hmm. community. But generally, it's it's hard to find a church that does both well. Yeah. Hmm. And when I look at that biblically, when when Christ said, you know, we're to communicate the gospel in both word and deed, right, right, those weren't two separate things. Mm-hmm. They're integrated. They're inseparable. Mm. And I think where I'm encouraged, I, I'm seeing a movement within the U.S. of churches to be more motivated to extend mercy. Mm. And I think part of it is the changing culture yeah. that we live in. Uh, you know, the reality today, for the first time in my life. Uh, 50% of the poor now live in suburban settings. Wow. Right. That, that's hard to imagine. Right. Yeah. You couldn't say that 10 years ago. Right. You know? And in that changing culture, I, I think churches are starting to understand the poverty, po- people in poverty, they live among us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that neighbor who I think maybe <laughs> is doing well, there might be four families that live in that house next to wow. me. Mm. And so I think churches are starting to understand that um, poverty is not something that is there in a distant land. Mm-hmm. It's all around us. And, and we're called to mobilize and to activate the church and to get outside the four walls and Absolutely. get into the streets, into the homes and make a difference. And we're starting to see that. That's awesome. awesome. Right on. me. All right. So we've lived in sort of this headspace so far of what you do, why you do it, the stats. Uh, I'd be curious, is there like a story or two that you could share with us that really resonates when you think about the work that you've done and continue to do about, you know, sometimes when you talk about like 1.3 billion, like we mentioned, that's just, it's it's a huge number. 
Can you tell us a story about one or two people that have really impacted you or something that you've experienced even in talking with other churches or leaders or on site that like really when you when people are asked, give us kind of the the heart, the guts of what it is that you do. Do you have a story or two that you could share? Yeah, I, I think the thing that motivates me the most to do what I do is when you see the change in the heart of a child. Yeah. Mm-hmm that's been impacted by the gospel. Yeah. And one of the realities of poverty is that one of the first things it does, it robs you of all hope. Mm. And I, I think of the many trips I've taken internationally uh, in Asia. We have a great church network that works with rescuing children mm. out of uh, trafficking. Wow. And, and it's, it's really <laughs> disturbing to think that a, a four or five year old child could be sexually abused. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, I I was a part of some of these child rescues, and and a few years back, I was at a children's home uh, where some of these children were were sharing their testimony. Hmm. And there was this little boy who was about eight years old. He looked like he was about four because of his stunted growth. Wow. And he got up there, and he shared his story. He talked about what he was like before he came into the home, and he described Hmm. himself where he had... His clothes were rags, and he had lice in his hair, and he Mm. had scarring on his back from where he had been beaten, and he had no shoes. He had dirt on his toes and fingers. And then he he shared the transition and the transformation that had happened in his life, and he read 1 John 1, 9. Wow. And he said, but look at me now. He goes, it's just been a year, and look at how my life is different. He said, my life is different today because of the love of Christ. And I think when you experience things like that, you see a child and you think of their past and where they've come from. Yeah. And then you, you truly see the redemptive act of the Holy Spirit that yeah. transforms a heart. It, it's great when you see that in adults. Yeah. But when you see that in a young child and you think that child has his whole life ahead of him. Right, yeah. right. But now he's able to reach his full potential in Christ. That's powerful. There's nothing that matches that in my no life. Kidding. No oh, kidding. That's powerful. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering for people out there who are driving in their cars right now. Um, so I, we heard you say churches, you know, we mobilize churches and go through churches. Can individuals get involved with you? And if so, how would individuals or is the role of the individual go to your church and kind of be a champion of this and get the church involved? Yeah, No, we want individuals involved. The best thing right. they can do is go to our website and explore giving opportunities, serving opportunities, volunteer opportunities. Uh, there's a great way to get involved there. I think here locally, one of the ways that individuals can help us the most is we're rolling out a campaign. We're only in the spring, Mm -hmm. but uh, we've got a big campaign this summer called Summer of Hope. And Mm -hmm. it's it's a national campaign to address the issue of summertime hunger. Whether we realize it or not, there's 22 million children in the U.S. that don't have access to government meals that the schools supply because they're out of school. Right, right. And that's true here in this state. And what we're trying to do is to get churches and our corporate partners uh, to fill kids packs, which are which are boxes of food with uh, ready to eat foods mm-hmm. that can be given to a child mm. and can be used to to meet a physical need. But more importantly, can be distributed by churches so that these churches have a chance to introduce That's them awesome. to a personal relationship with Christ. That's, That's fantastic. OK, so I didn't realize this, though, that you have a, a mercy ministry initiative called Rethink Mercy as well. Mm-hmm. And that partners with local churches. And and just a couple, can you walk us through what that actually is and how people can get more information about that too? Absolutely. What that is, is before we work with any church, uh, we take them through a one to two day training curriculum. Got it. It is uh, a curriculum that is based on a biblical view of poverty and mercy. Hmm. What we want to make sure every church that engages the poor in feeding programs, they understand biblically why we do it. Got it. 
And so oftentimes when someone starts a feeding program in the church, it's by someone that was once needy themselves. Mm-hmm. But they can't answer the question, why do they do it? They just say, because it's the right thing to right, do. Yeah. Right. But we want to show them biblically the reason we feed the poor is first and foremost to address the issue of spiritual poverty mm-hmm. that exists in their heart. And that's why we do what we do. That's really good. With the like, minute we have left or minute and a half we have left, and you started to do it there, uh, I would like to, why don't you take a minute and just try to compel people out there, whether it's through Children's Hunger Fund or something else, why as that believer out there who's got all their stresses in the world need to care about the poor, um, how that's at the heartbeat of this faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I think if you, if you read the New Testament, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things Jesus talked about the most was the fact that he's the father to the fatherless. Yes. Yeah. And because of that, we have a personal obligation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have had the benefit of being introduced to our loving father and an extension of showing gratitude for the sacrifices made for us on the cross mm. is to go out and love a lost world. Yeah. Mm. And if there's no better motivation to do it than that, I can't think what there is. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Right. No kidding. Absolutely. Well, Dave, we're really excited that you came in today. Thanks for coming in and spending some time with us. Again, Dave Phillips is the president and the founder of the Children's Hunger Fund. I know, Ian, one of the things we love is getting these people in and being able to be like, I feel challenged. I want to support everybody who comes through. Right? I, always feel, I always feel challenged. <laughs> well, it's remarkable. That. Luckily, I've got somebody in my church over here sitting next to you who can help compel this. So <laughs> exactly. uh, you can find more information at childrenshungerfund.org. That's childrenshungerfund.org. Dave, Antho, uh, thank you guys for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. Thank You've been you listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can also uh, find old shows at... I forgot the website there for a second, but now I'm back. <laughs> 1160hope.com. Do you ever try to do too many things at once? And all of a sudden you're like, what am I saying? Most every that's day. Bad. Yes. When, when yes. your job is audio, that's a bad that's place a to be point. in. But I can verify, though, as the other physical person in the room, that you were doing a couple of different things. You didn't just have, you know. I was actually looking for our text line. That's what I was. Oh, and so now see, you could text us. I want to buy you some it. time. You could text us at 68683. <laughs> that's 68683. And there type CG for common good. And then leave us a comment, leave us a concern, a question, whatever uh, it is you want to do. Well, man, you and I both have kids. Yours are getting a little older. Mine are certainly older. I mean, they're not getting younger. That's, That's a good point. <laughs> both, of, both of our children are aging. We, we're really we're in full Friday mode at the moment right now. <laughs> full Friday mode. Uh, but but what we want to do, I want to talk about truth and teaching our kids how to tell the truth and what. I want to frame this around this. You and I talked about this. We live in a culture increasingly that doesn't value truth. And this isn't a political statement, but we have a president who doesn't value truth. We have a Congress that doesn't value truth. Uh, We have people who use words and use the truth as manipulation. And I think that's fair to say on both sides of the aisle. And I thought we had a good discussion earlier this week or the end of last week about how that is moving its way down Mm. through the culture. And that the lack of value of truth on people high up in the culture is making its way down. And my greatest worry is that now our kids don't value the truth, mm. that, that they're seeing that our words can be used manipulatively uh, and that as our president, as our Congress, as our leaders don't value the truth, as pastors we increasingly see don't value truth, 
Our kids don't value truth. And so I want to spin the conversation forward this way. How do we teach our kids to tell the truth? Yep. How do we teach them to value the truth? And as we were talking about that, we found a great article at the Gospel Coalition that's thankfully titled How to Teach Your Kids to Tell the Truth. So as a pastor, as a dad, uh, how do you think uh, you will help instill the value of truth in your kids in a culture that doesn't value truth? You know, that's a, a pretty complicated question because yeah. like, I remember hearing a comedian a couple years ago talk about how do you teach kids not to lie? How do you teach them the way he said it was? How do you teach them to not use this perfect solution to all of life's problems, exactly. right? The, you know, we, we often, in, in his particular um, bit, he was saying how, you know, we'll, we'll come in fist ablaze and scream at our kids, did you eat the cookie? And then the kid goes, uh, no. Exactly. And we go, okay, well, have a good day then. Yep. Like, how, how do we teach them not to apply that principle in every circumstance, which is really, t- again, I'm, I'm what, 17 months into this parenting thing? Caveat, I have no idea how I'm going to yeah. do this. Like, that, that's just true. But how do we create environments where we do still teach consequences, but our kids feel safe to tell us the truth? Yeah. You know, because I think that is often the tendency when we, you know, when it's the scariest thing in the world to tell the truth and lying gets you out of trouble. Yes. <laughs> like, that. that's a pretty hard thing to, uh, to you know. To not be attractive in the eye of a 12-year-old, you know? It is really hard. When when your kids are getting older, how to even be like, how to differentiate when they're lying and when they're not. Like when they're little, little, it's so obvious that it's almost cute. <laughs> right, uh, right. Did you play with the paint that I told you not to play? As they have paint covered all in paint, over right? right? No. <laughs> and it's almost cute. But then you teach them about, honestly, when your kids get older, they get they get, they good. get good at it. They right? can get good. They can get good. I'm sure. And sometimes it's like... Uh, how do I even go down this road and figure out which kid's telling me the truth and it's tiring and they're just, it's a learned behavior, right? Like, totally. like you said, lying can be advantageous. Well, and I, so, and this is maybe the point of this discussion now. Yep. So this might be a, a wrench in the cog, but like, I think sometimes the other end of this is people, adults mm-hmm. who uh, have labeled themselves truth tellers and excused themselves um, in their methodology, like yeah. I, as, as long as I'm telling the truth, truth is the high. So I could be a total jerk. Yep, use truth um, but, as a weapon. But yeah. I, right, because I'm the truth teller. It doesn't matter how I say it, because I'm the wielder of truth. I think that's equally as problematic. There, there's an obsession with the truth at all costs, or yeah. the truth in any packaging, and I, I don't think that's helpful either. No, absolutely, that's a great point. Like there is some, <laughs> there's something to be said about the truth with love. You yeah, know? I think right, it's biblical. Right. Uh, but this article gives a couple helpful practices in fostering honesty in your children. But you always like to do this. Like we talked about a story the other day about like in youth and you said, or everybody, just everybody. I think this is true. These are true for everybody. Six practices in fostering honesty period in our own lives, in the lives of our congregations and like our small groups and stuff like that. But then also in our children, the first is this, it says to pray. Um, But then I, I, not to jump past prayer, but I'm going to jump past prayer. (laughs) The second one is this, teach them that God is truthful. And that seems to make sense. Like God is not a God of dishonesty. Uh, God is truthful. Uh, And here's the one I want you to to, to respond to. Model truth telling yourself, especially when it's costly. What do you think that looks like as a parent? I think that's the opposite of do as I say, not as I do. Ah, right? good one, yes. Right, which is so easy for us to uh, hop on this authoritative, authoritarian parenting posture. That's like, hey, it doesn't matter how I do it. I'm telling you to do it because yes. you're under my roof and I'm paying for those clothes. Like, Which, again, is your prerogative to do. I just think as our kids grow and as they develop in the ability to think critically, they're like, okay, so 
So dad has made this a huge priority verbally, but he doesn't actually model that in his own life. So it can't, how, how can our kids not connect the dots? They're like, yep. that's actually not that important to dad oh, because he's not doing it himself. You know what I mean? Just wait too, man. I like, can't wait. You, <laughs> oh, man. The first time your kids are like, uh, well, you do this. Right. Oh, shoot. Yes, I do. I know. Which is, I'm sure, not always our posture because if they're doing it with like a little bit of an attitude, like, well, you do this. Yep. I imagine that would be easy to say. It's not about whether or not I do it. This is the right thing to do. Yes. I could see the temptation to get defensive. You know, already I can feel that. And this is where one of the most important things I've learned as a parent is when you're wrong, say you're sorry, own it to your children. Totally. And that goes so far. Like, to, when your kids see you apologize and say that you're wrong, then later on, when you don't say that you're, when you say, no, I'm right about this, mm-hmm. they're like, okay, well, th- dad's got a leg to stand on. Mom's got a leg to stand on. Uh, here's another great one talk to your kids about telling the truth or talk to your church about telling the truth. This was a hard one for me because I will only talk to my kids about telling the truth when I think they're not telling the truth. Oh, right. But what about in just, in neutral times, just being like, hey, guys, like a lot of people lie in this world, but why is that wrong? And having that conversation with your kids. It's like teaching on generosity, not just when you're in a financial crisis. Like, yes. oh, generosity is just a good posture for us as a church to have all the time, not yep. not just in, you know, when things are kind of tight. And I think this last one actually is really important, particularly in uh, the age of social media. Um, having underscored honesty also teach discernment. Mm. It says not all truth needs to be announced and certainly uh, need not be brutal in certain contexts. Some truth is better left unsaid. You know, sometimes kids can just blurt <laughs> whatever yes. comes to their mind. Also, just teaching discernment. Right, right. Yes. You said honesty. You said to be truthful. Yeah, teaching them discernment, which is you know tied to critical thinking. I think is such an important step to take. You're right. Not not just as parents, but as as people. Yeah. Um, because that is often what we see. If someone says something really brutal. Someone else weighs in and says, "Man, that was really harsh." You're like, "Well, that was true." Yeah. As if that's the that's the ultimate goal all the time. You're yep. like, I think Scripture and Jesus Himself certainly models it. Also invites us to biblically wise discernment, and I think uh, that's a little more nuanced. That's really good. The last one, too, that I read here was reward your kids for truth-telling. Yeah. We reward them for good grades. We record them. We reward them for other performance things. Uh, and how you reward kids is another conversation. But when's the one where I said, hey, you told the truth, and it was hard. Way I'm go. going to reward you for that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to affirm that good behavior. Friends, we live in a culture that doesn't value truth. There's no way around it. It's it is not a mark of even of integrity anymore to be a truth teller. It's it's we kind of go towards what is what makes our life easier, uh, and because of that, we need to really uh, teach our children, teach ourselves, teach our congregations what it means the importance of telling the truth. Well, you're listening to the Common Good on AM eleven sixty Hope for Your Life. When we come back, coming up next, we're going to talk about a happy story, a happy story from American Idol. Uh, that kind of paints a picture for what the church is supposed to be. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. 
You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find old shows online at 1160hope.com. And you can text us now at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG for The Common Good. And then leave us your comments, your questions, your ideas, uh, whatever it is you want to uh, share with us. Yeah, Brian, before we move on, too, you said something at the end of the last segment that I would love. That you're inspired. I'm by. Insp- inspired. <laughs> it by. just moved me to tears. Yes. I just regained composure <laughs> just a second ago. No, you said something like, we live in a culture that doesn't value truth anymore, so be it people who tell the truth. Yep. And I don't know that I agree. I think, I think by and large, culture does value truth. I think sometimes maybe as Christ followers, we disagree with what they conclude as truth. Mm. But I think it's easy. You know, we have celebrities and politicians who are, you know, by design in the limelight. And there's a lot of dishonesty there. You know, dishonesty in politics is not new, nor are we really surprised by that. But I don't know. When I meet people left and right, Christian and atheist, progressive and traditional, everything in between, it feels like the vast majority of people are like, yeah, I'm, we're, I'm trying to get at the actual truth. And maybe that's um, naive. Maybe that's optimistic. I do yeah. feel like it is unfair to lump the vast majority of everybody based on the behavior of the people that have the limelight. And I could be way wrong. I just think I think more people value truth than we realize. I think that's probably true. I do think, though, that in fair or unfair, a culture gets defined by its leaders uh, and the people who are most out there. Yeah, um, that's unfortunate. It is. It is. So if our president and our Congress and our governors and... The celebrities, as you said, or athletes, athletes, or, you know, we did when, when we did that story about like uh, the other day about the admission scandal and people lying. Oh, right, right. Uh, but I do, I think, you know, it, it is a good caution that you give to not paint everybody with a broad brush. Like just because Donald Trump is a liar usually or doesn't seem to value the truth as much. Oh, boy. Oh, Brian from <laughs> Sorry. Go, going <laughs> after the president it's late on a Friday. <laughs> Doesn't mean that everybody, you know, on Main Street in America is just lying to get. I think that's a fair. That's a fair assessment. But let's have a happy story. All right. right. Let's do it. Now that I. Hey, let me give the text line now that I ripped the president again. Six, eight, six, eight, three. You could text us your comments or your angry tweets, (laughs) your angry comments right there. Uh, I just love this title. And you told me that as we were discussing this story that you actually saw this clip. So it's true. American Idol. My kids love to watch American Idol. I'm not a hugest fan. Like. My kids, man, I mean, they watch a little tangent, American Idol and The Voice and America's Got Talent and Survivor. It's like every genre of like, <laughs> vote this person off. Right. And They're like, all kind of the, sh- the same show. I too. am like enough already. And so they turn it on. I kind of zone out. Uh, American Idol judges brought to tears after learning church sent once homeless girl to audition. So you said you saw this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, I mean it was it was really moving and it does help that she was, you know, talented too. Uh-huh. Like that that is that is often the part of the story that uh that gets credit. But uh, so so Brian, Luke Brian, who was visibly moved by Wilson's rendition of My Girl, told Wilson that he was glad that she was able to come to the audition. He said, "When you got on the piano, it truly started stirring many many emotions in me. And quite frankly, I don't know how kids like you pony up and make it here." And Wilson responded, saying, my church. Perry, whose eyes were filled with water, quickly asked, your church sent you here? Wilson answered, yeah, uh, just right there after church. And as tears streamed down Perry's face, she told Wilson that her story reminded her of her own. If you you were aware, Katy Perry is a a pastor's kid and was raised in the church. And so this idea, not just that she's got a crazy story, but that her, her church 
quite literally rallied around her, said, we believe in you so much that we're going to actually make this possible, was just all the more reason to be kind of caught up in the magic of the story. It was, it was pretty remarkable. That's awesome. It, it would have been just, we've all seen American Idol enough to know that that girl was going to be good. Yeah, yeah. They actually <laughs> like, have terrible auditions less do. and less. That's they're, very they're, true. You, I've noticed I think that. early on that was like part of their shtick, and less and less the terrible ones get through. Especially with Simon Cowell. He would he would just kind of go off on them. Right. But, man, this I read this story, and you saw it, and I, when I read this story, I was like, my first thought, to be honest with you, was like, that's the church. Yeah. Like, that is what the church is supposed to do. Yeah. This is a homeless girl, and, and loving on her— and then loving on her to the point of like, we believe in you. Yeah. Right. Like, even though you're down and out, we believe in you. Like there's so much in there. And then it brings, you know, I know Luke Bryan, like he's a believer and Katy Perry was raised in the church, but American Idol itself is not a yeah. Christian yeah. show as yep. we fully aware, but to have them brought to tears because a church did this, um, man, like uh, you and I have a lot of stories where we rightfully bash the evangelical American church and rightfully like bring up things that the church isn't doing well. And here we want to affirm this church and say, keep going church, do more stuff like this. Well, and the thing that I do like about, I mean, it's worth reading too, or finding online because um, like she's in a home now, this girl's in a, you know, this, her once homeless family now lives in a small home. And while most of them don't have beds to sleep on, she's still grateful to have a home. Like Mm. this, this, this is still a very like real reality that she's living in. And this church uh, is investing in her, even if she never made it on TV, right? Yeah. Like so. So part of my, if I could just be skeptical for a little bit, yeah. There was a big trend for a long time where one church did it, and then like eighty other churches did it, where they would have somebody, you know, quote unquote, randomly deliver a pizza to the church on a Sunday morning, and they'd bring that person on stage, and then they would talk, I... and then they'd invite everyone to like bring money to the stage to leave as this big tip. Which the first one, it was really moving. Yes. Like, oh, this church just gave this like $3,000 tip to this Domino's delivery guy. It was awesome. Then I saw all these other churches do it. And then yep. it, beca- it became all these like mega viral clips. And again, I'm grateful for this awesome gift of generosity to the guy. But like the, my skepticism hat goes on. I think, yep. wait, are you just doing this to make a viral video? Like that's yep. part of the reason I love this story is they had no guarantee that this girl would get through or that she'd even ever talk about it. Yep. It, it could have, I mean, it might have just been... Like, I think it was Eugene Peterson. He wrote a book called The Pastor, and there was a line in it that has always, always wrecked me. He said, the pastor is at his best when his work goes unnoticed. Mm. Not the sermon that crushed or the tweet that got all the retweets, yes. but, like, it's the stuff in the in the quiet that, like, next to nobody will ever know. And I've, so good. I've been really convicted by that. The irony of telling that on, on a radio <laughs> show I is not it's lost not on lost me. On yeah. Us. But man, oh man, like I just love hearing stories of the church like rallying around somebody with with real like no promise of yes. of any appreciation for it. You and know? it's a reminder, you know, we had Dave Phillips on from the Children's Hunger Fund, and sometimes when you talk about one point three billion people are hungry, yeah, like it can become really overwhelming. And I thought yep. what he said was insightful, but also what you learn in this story is insightful. Like you don't need to save the world; you can just save one. Yeah, like you can totally you can help that one person in totally. your church. You can help that one person in your community. You can sponsor that one child. You can do that one thing right through Cross International. If you want to do that at our website, you can continue to sponsor them there at 1160hope.com. But you don't need to save all 1.3 billion people hungry because that will will make you 
that will just paralyze you to do nothing. Yeah, right. But this church said, here's a person, a family that we can help, and we're going to do it. Andy Stanley, I think, put it brilliantly, as he often does. He often says, does. Do, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Yes. Right? That idea of um, like a kid asking for a cookie. Yeah. And as a parent, you say, I can't give you a cookie, because if I give you a cookie, then I'll have to give everyone a cookie. And when you're a kid, you're thinking, no, you don't. Just me a cookie. I which won't. I won't tell them. It'll be our little secret. And he says we carry that into adulthood, though, where we we read 1.3 billion and we think, well, there's no way I could ever care for all of them. His his call is, so, I think, so timely. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. That's really good. Just because you can't solve all of these problems doesn't mean you can't be Jesus right here and now to someone at your doorstep, in your neighborhood, in your community. Like that, to me, is such an important reminder. That when like the weight of the world crushes in on us, and it often, at least for me, sometimes I look yep. at global statistics and I think, well, where do I even start? Holy cow. Like, start somewhere. Yeah. Make, do, do the next right thing. It's so interesting. Uh, you bring up that quote because I took a picture of it. Here it is. I'm showing you. Other people can't see it. <laughs> I took a picture of a tweet the other day with Andy mm. Stanley standing mm. up there and says, do for one what you, could, what you wish you could do for everyone. So good. It's just such a powerful thing, right? Like, when you think, even in the scope of a church, when you think, I need to... I need to disciple everybody in this church, right. not even the globe, just this church. That's still overwhelming. Still too you know much. Yep, How totally. about the one person you can help? Totally. The one, the one person you come alongside, the one child you can help, uh, the one thing you can do. And then if there's a movement of people doing their one things, mm. now a movement begins and, and a real change begins. Well, that's what we want to talk about here on The Common Good, right? You always do right. a really good job at saying we do this show to kind of help people wrestle with how, you know how to deal with the mess of the world and the hard things. And that's... Uh, one way we can do that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad that you're joining us on this Friday evening. Hopefully you're looking forward to a great weekend. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show online at 1160hope.com. And you can also text us. You can text the show at 68683. That's 68683 and type in CG for Common Good and then your comment. But Or, Ian, you can just do what some nice person did for us earlier this week and write us a handwritten letter. Uh- I love handwritten mail so yes. much. Yes, and being that we're new at this, when we got this, we'll let you all know out there, when oh, we man. got this handwritten letter, we were both scared. We were like, uh-oh, <laughs> what are they going to say to us? And it was the sweetest thing. If, I think you were more scared than I was. <laughs> if I was. If, <laughs> if you're out there and you're the one who wrote the letter, we're really grateful. That was nice. That was, that was, nice. That was, that was really, really sweet. We yeah, love that. It was sweet. It was sweet. Well, one thing we, uh, you especially like to say here is that language matters. And uh, you you showed me this article that is simply titled this, Why We Need to Stop Calling Women, quote, Girls. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's an interesting take. I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Go ahead. Okay. So it's it's actually something that I have felt um, at numerous times in my life, but certainly haven't articulated uh, as well as this article does. And I do understand that some may think this is going too far. They may mm-hmm. disagree. That you know, all those caveats in place. I, I think it's actually worth talking about. Not only do I think language matters, but uh, another thing that um, I've often heard said is that words create worlds. That the words that we mm-hmm. use, um, whether consciously or subconsciously, actually impact the way that we interact and the way that we uh, engage with the world around us. So this, yeah, this headline of why we need to stop calling women girls uh, is pretty fascinating. Uh, it says, let's get technical for a second and talk about the definition of girl. 
According to dictionary.com, girl means a female child mm. uh, from birth to full grown or a, a young, immature woman. That basically rules out most women reading this since we're all adults. And it kind of goes on to say, now I know I get that like most of the time it is used endearingly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so it, it does kind of uh, tip a hat to it's not, it's not most of the time being used uh, to demean or belittle, but uh, offers a couple of. Uh, I think unique problems with calling women girls that um, I've not really considered this bluntly. And, you know, just cards on the table. You and I are like two white straight men. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to assume the posture of a learner in this yeah. regard. Like I want to maybe this hasn't been my experience. So maybe there's some things we can learn. So let me just walk through a couple of these and see what you think. Uh, number one, it makes women into children. A girl is a person under the age of 18 who still lives with their parents. So when you use that term in reference to a successful woman who has worked hard to get where she is today, you're kind of ignoring her accomplishments and diminishing her maturity. Mm. What do you think? So I think for this whole thing, what my initial response to you remember with this was like, <laughs> is this really a big deal? Uh, yeah. And right. uh, this is one spot where, but then I had that thought of like, well, I am a guy and, and I actually was trying to think, do I ever call women girls? Mm. And I couldn't think that I, this might be, might, maybe it just shows the problem. I was like, I don't know if I ever call women girls and I don't know if I ever call men boys. And, and I think I can be loose with, with language okay. is, is the point. And so, uh, you know, again, cards on the table. When I read this article, when you sent it to me, I was like, that seems a little overly sensitive. Well, and that's. <laughs> and, and, but I think as I've, we've talked about it and as I've read it, I've got, well, maybe that's the point. Well, that's right, too. And, and what I've noticed about you, like, I don't interact you calling women specifically girls. No. But I think sometimes in reference to um, maybe, maybe that's where it's a little more prevalent. And, I, yeah. you know, I won't dive into this. Specifically, but I, I do remember seeing a video about a year or two ago of a, a woman. She just had someone film her walking from her apartment to her job mm. like four days in a row and counted how many times she was cat called on the street. Really? I don't remember the specifics. The The amount of times was baffling. It was kind of one of those things that I often hear guys say, is it really that bad? Is it really yeah, that big a yeah. deal? She dressed in like normal clothes, walked from her apartment to her place of employment and back. And I mean, it was like dozens upon dozens of times per trip yeah, yeah. of being harassed and whistled at and called and often girl was associated with that. That's yeah. so, so there's another whole kind of conversation about some of what that word has come to mean in, yeah. in that context. And I would say along those lines, something that I'm trying to learn better is in my own life is again, in, in groups that I'm not a part of, Oh, I'm not a woman. Yeah. Uh, right. News, newsflash. <laughs> like, or uh, like you said, I'm not an African-American or whatever right, else. Right. And sometimes I can hear things and be like, well, that sounds overly sensitive or that mm. sounds crazy. And then I have to think to myself, well, maybe that's the point. Maybe yeah. I just don't understand. Yeah, right. Um, and so I'm doing all I can not to dismiss this because I'm just going to be honest that when Good I first you. read this, I'm like, I'm proud of you, man. Really? Okay. Way to go. Uh, here's another one. Uh, it perpetuates our unhealthy obsession with youth and women. Mm-hmm. This is another one that's come up a lot. Like men, you know, stereotypically as they age, get like classy. Right, they get salt and pepper hair. They get yeah. It, it seems, and again, this is in our experience. It doesn't seem that, by and large, culture is nearly as gracious yeah. towards women as they age. Yeah. Men, they're like, oh, they're like, they're mature or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. It, it does feel, again, based on the female friends that I have, this does feel like it's more pressure than you or I, as men, realize. And this idea of girls, I think, does in some ways kind of perpetuate this youth obsession yeah, idea. So this one, I, I get, like, because like. Hmm. You know, my hair, my hair is starting to go gray in places and no one has ever said, oh, you should really think about coloring that, (laughs) you know, Mm. and, you know, women either from their because they want to or because they feel this pressure to tend to try to look younger and stay younger and 
Uh, so I get this one. I think I think there is a cultural difference between how men and women are treated as they get older. And I'm feeling that more and more as I get into my 40s, uh, kind of going over that hump and starting mm. to see different people in my life. And I think that one's true. Okay, another one. Uh, there is no male equivalent. Some might try to argue that we address men as guys all the time, but that's not the equivalent to women being called girls. Merriam-Webster defines guy as man, fellow. There's nothing age-specific about it, so when the word is used on men, it doesn't bear the same patronizing undertones as mm. when we use the word girl, which I never thought about, really. Mm. Like, guy, I, I mean, I use the word guy all the time. I don't really think of, I don't typically think of, oh, I'm thinking like a little, little, little boy, like a toddler, preschool. Oh. Girl, I think, uh, and understandably so, it seems like it's been defined that way for centuries, yeah. does seem to imply this, like, youthfulness, this, like, little kid immaturity yep. component, and there does, apart from the word boy, Little boy, there isn't there isn't really a male equivalent. So oftentimes, like oh, a bunch of guys and girls, got those seem like they're oh, interchangeably. Yeah. But I don't. I, I think what this article is asserting is they're not actually on a level playing field. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think I'm starting to see some of this. Okay, see, you're Look, winning me over. Go you're having an, you're having an awakening an during this segment. <laughs> Outstanding. So it kind of transitions perfectly in the last one. It prevents us from treating each other as equals. Language isn't a petty thing. Amen, amen, amen. It plays a significant role in how we see the world, how we treat one another, and how we make sense of ourselves. When a group of adult women are waved off as a bunch of girls, we feel like, this is a female writer, she said, we feel like we're being talked down to in a condescending way. Now, this may sound like something minute, but when it's done over and over and over again, it takes us further away from ever feeling like we're considered as worthy and adult as men. Mm. And again, I, I mean, I do, I really appreciate the honesty of this writer because this is... I'm sure she caught some flack for this. She says, we're not children, though. We're not youngsters who need help in order to get through the day. And it's not helpful to talk to us like that's the case. And I just think that is uh, that is convicting at the very least for me to to, to even realize, as you said, whether or not you agree entirely or at all with the article. It's something that you and I probably don't spend all that much time thinking about because it it isn't our reality. And I think the the kicker, the the strong statement there was uh, language isn't a petty thing. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and I would even add to that, it's even if certain languages are a petty thing for you, hmm. doesn't mean it's petty for everybody. Oh, right? All right. And like we, you know, this is where you get into our culture and people want to be like, oh, everybody's too sensitive. Everybody's a snowflake. But like that's not for you to decide that's on right. other people. That's like, right. Your language uh, you don't know just because it doesn't hit a nerve with you doesn't mean it doesn't hit a nerve with the with the people that it's affecting. And, and the power of words isn't just how it affects you. Yes. Like it's striking a nerve or not. Yes. Actually, I think it's secondary because even if you're someone who thinks, oh, I don't think words matter that much, that yep. does not stop your words from having power. Yep. So even if you've diminished them in your own context, words that you're using carefully or carelessly yeah. still have an impact, and uh, we we don't get to change that. Exactly. So I think it is worth. I mean, even like in terms, you know, you, you and I have probably beat this drum a couple of times when we say, oh, "Are you going to church?" Yes. And as pastors, we're like, "I oh, don't." Go to church. We are the church, right. and our you know our church rolls their eyes at us. Like we know, like, yeah. But words matter, though. When we talk about church just as an address, yep, that leads us down one line of thinking. When we see the church as the gathered people, that's good. That will affect us in a different way, and that's yep. why I think language actually really does matter. And language does matter for everybody. I think what's becoming clear for me is like different things about language matter for different people. Yeah, like, right. You know, if you made fun of, if you were constantly making fun of people in their early forties who were kind of short, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> then I might be become insulted over time. Right, but, right. Uh, and so trying to enter into not just how does it, whatever, what, you know, 
oh, someone's called a girl. That shouldn't bother them. Well, mm. I think that because it's kind of that's not my thing. You know, it doesn't affect me. Right. Right. Uh, and so I do think this is important. That's that's a powerful statement. Language is not a petty thing. Yep. Language has power. I feel like that's right out of the book of James. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, it's right out of the Bible. So this is good. I think you won me over. <laughs> you Mission accomplished. Me over. There you go. There you go. Coming up next on The Common Good, uh, I came across a lo- an Illinois law that I didn't know existed, and I want to get your take on it. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Almost done on a Friday afternoon. You get to go home and not sleep and sermon prep. I'm sure that's your weekend. Oh, my sermon, my sermon's been done for two days. Has it really? What are you uh-huh. preaching on this weekend? I can't tell you. I'm not preaching. Oh, <laughs> but typically the... Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah, usually done by Thursday. Okay, I'm more a Thursday, Friday guy. So, you know, this being Friday, I'm not completely done just yet. I should also say I do still tweak on Friday and then sometimes late Saturday into Saturday. Night, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So when I say done, that should be in air quotes. If you're out there and your pastor tries to tell you they're done, done by anything before Thursday, uh, you have our permission to yell liar at them. Uh, if, yes. I'm preaching uh, starting Jonah this week. Oh, that's exciting. A quick four-weeker on Jonah. Four-weeker? Four-weeker on Jonah. I'm very excited about that. I look forward to hearing about it, man. I think I think Jonah it's is fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a good story. So much there. And I have our kicker from the other day where the guy was swallowed by, where the guy was like hanging out of the uh, whale the other you got day. like a real life story Start. to use. I'm now that pastor who's using our <laughs> yeah, last right. segment in his sermon. When life imitates art, well done. We've gone full circle. Well, you can text the show at 68683, that's 68683, and type in CG uh, and then your comments or your questions. Ian, I came across a law that I didn't know existed in the state of Illinois. And let me just read it to you this. Uh, in, if an Illinois parent is found to have left a 14-year-old child home alone, they could face a child neglect investigation. Uh, State Representative Joe Sosnowski, a Republican from Rockford, said Illinois has the highest minimum age in the nation, and that needs to change. Most states set it at 12 or 10. Some don't have any age at all. Some go all the way down to 8. So now there's this new bill. There's this movement within the Illinois House to try to move this law down. Uh, and, and the people are saying, well, this is kind of out of years ago. It was in response to kids being left overnight and all this stuff. But I got to be honest with you. I never knew this law existed. No, me neither. Man. This least, is news to me. I don't know. How how young were you when you were left home alone? Three. <laughs> you were homeschooled. <laughs> um, that's a great question. Uh, probably not until double digits. Well, you had a lot of little kids in your, like you were the oldest of a lot, right? That's true. But I mean, we, I don't know. That was a different era though, too. Doesn't it feel like, I mean, I read this and my, my knee jerk is, but that's 14, 14. They're like gearing up to start driver's ed school and all that. Like that just to me seems a little, a little over the top. I probably was, I probably wasn't. Probably wasn't until I was like 10 or 11. Yeah. They left me home. I, mean, I have a 15-year-old at home, and she's been babysitting for like two or three years. Yeah, so it's, understandably. It is uh, It is a little confusing. And I, I know what we'll do with our younger ones. Uh, how old are they? 10 and 8? No, sorry. Sorry, Jackson. And Emily. 11 and 9. <laughs> 11 and 9. What we'll do is we will leave them for, you know, short amounts of time. Uh, you know, hour, two hours. But... I never knew this was a law, and I don't know what to think about it because it feels like a huge overreach uh, and just kind of 
kind of crazy, but also in our culture now, I do know as a parent that I there's a lot of things I don't let my kids do that we used to do all the time uh, as kids. We we could fill a and whole I don't show. Mean, with I don't that. even mean danger. I mean like feel like fearing for them. Like, oh yeah, right. We for instance, and you out there might think that I'm just a really kind of a a helicopter parent here, but <laughs> like. We live, if you walk down our road and then down a small road, you're at one of the biggest parks in Downers Grove. Okay. That's where I live. So it's, I if I let my kids go there, I can see them most of the way. Hmm. I don't let them go by themselves usually. Hmm. They can go with a friend. They can go with each other. It was only within the last year or two that I didn't make sure I went with them. Right. Whereas like when we were kids, it was like... See, see a, a dinner, see a exactly. dinner, see you when the streetlights come on. Exactly. But I, it is weird because it's just a different world that we live in. Like... Uh, you're going to feel this as your kids get older. I'm it sure. It's weird. We live walking distance from our school, and I still walk my kids to school, partially because I like it. Like, I like right, to Right, that's walk like connection them. time and all that, yeah. But also because it's a little bit like, well, I'll walk you to school. That's interesting. Yeah, I, yeah you're right. I'm not there yet because my kids are so young, so I'm, I feel like I don't really have any room to speak to this at all. But I do know, even just when I was a youth pastor, which was not that long ago, yeah. it doesn't feel like. Um. Yeah, I pile all the kids into a van. We're gonna go get Taco Bell, and that is like permission slips and blood samples and retina scans before anyone can <laughs> leave the building. You know what I mean? Like even even that has shifted. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, we've done some pretty like horrific, heartbreaking stories in the last two months. Exactly. I, I read stories like that. And I'm like, yeah, let's keep upping the ante of accountability. And then I look at stuff like this, and I think, but a 14 year old that's my yep. kid at home. Now it yep. does say later in the article that this law was kind of a holdover, an overreaction. From a case 30 years prior right. where uh, a family le- left two of their kids at home while they went on family vacation. Yeah, that's bad. That's real bad. Or it's a Christmas movie. I was going to say, I think it's, <laughs> oh, this is uh, Kevin McAllister. Is what it's <laughs> or it's a Christmas movie. But that's different. That That is a totally different ball game. Yep. And again, uh, you know, live your life. Like, I'm, we're not here to tell parents how to parent. It just it does feel a little overreaching, I think, to have a, yep. a law in place that somebody could who would who would report you the kid like no. how like how did that even That's happen the weird thing you hear all these stories now and obviously they're like the sensationalized stories that are in the paper or whatever but you will read stories where like a kid has been left to walk from you know down the street to to the park or something and somebody calls the cops on the parents for like neglect and you're like what they just walked up the street or down the street and it is a weird time to be parenting i would say that like i mean when we were kids and maybe Maybe we were just naive, but when I was a kid, I never thought about half the things that they that I feel like I need to talk to my kids about. Like, did you ever walk around being like, "Oh, I hope I don't get kidnapped," or, See, or yes. "I got to be careful about like, uh, you know, X, Y, or Z"? Like, it, it just feels like a strange. Maybe it's because I'm an adult now. Maybe my parents did worry about, yeah, those right. Things, but your parents I never probably picked did. up on that. Well, as a that's a thing, like. <laughs> That's one of the things about me as a kid. I probably could have stood to be more afraid of things. <laughs> like I probably lacked a lot of just what truly would have been common sense among my peers. I was always like, "What's the worst that could happen? Let's give it a shot." Like we were, you know, sneaking under property and jumping off of bridges that weren't like we were doing things uh, that objectively were dangerous. Thinking, yeah, I'm 15, we're invincible. Yeah. Um, so that you know, that's maybe more my stuff than anything. I do know that, like, I used to walk a mile to my friend's house by myself, like, just down the streets. And, and nowadays, you'd be like, well, that's, you don't do that anymore. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm just turned into overprotective parent. But most of the parents I know wouldn't just let their kids do that. Mm-hmm. And they'll go bike riding with their friends or this or that. But 
there just does seem to be a greater edge. But then there's this this law just to me is crazy. <laughs> well, and it's it, we so we talked about this a couple weeks ago too. Uh, the term had been helicopter parents, right? Yep. Which is you're probably hovering maybe hovering. a little too much. Mm-hmm. You're like involved in everything. And the new term that I've been reading about is lawnmower parents, yes. which is going before the kid metaphorically. And just kind of cutting down anything that could possibly stand in their way. Yes. This idea of, like, giving them the smoothest road possible. And now we have stories of celebrities, you know, bribing colleges to there get their kids is. in. That's uh, That, I think, is to the nth degree uh, lawnmower parents. So, you know, I don't—I wonder if—it's hard to tell what's cart and what's horse in this kind of, yeah. just, you know, is the world actually a worse place? Or are we just more aware of it? Or have we really become more fearful in general? Like— you know, I've only been married a few years. This is some of the stuff that we found early in marriage. I I may leave the doors unlocked kind of guy just oh, all yeah. the time. All yeah. the, in fact, like I, you know, I grew up outside Detroit. Never had my car broken into. I moved to Illinois, and I got my car broken into like three times. Did you really? And the first time, the mean streets of Naperville. Right. No, I wasn't in Naperville. <laughs> I wasn't in Naperville. But I I remember they smashed out my window and took a guitar that cost less than the window did. And I was like, man, if I left the car unlocked, they could have just taken the guitar <laughs> and left my window intact. Like, That's wild. So sometimes, that, for me, it's like, see, sometimes we, we overprotect and we over-sanitize and it just it, it leads to anxiety and stress. But other times, I think it's the right thing to do and, and I got to learn that too, you know? Like we, uh, we did have some stuff stolen out of one of our cars in our driveway a couple years ago. Oh, jeez. In Grove. But then the other day, that same driveway, one of my children left the, uh, left the van door open. The whole night. Just wide open. <laughs> so you woke up, you're like, What's I walked going outside on? and I was like, Does something looks weird. What's uh, wait a minute. Oh, the the, the van door's open. That's funny. Right. <laughs> Glad it didn't snow last night. Like it was all iced inside the van. Oh my word. So, that's so funny. But parenting's a fun thing. Hey, we would we said we have a text line, and I'm very curious. What about you parents out there? Uh when do you uh, what are some of the things you let your kids do? What are some of the things you don't let your kids do that maybe you used to be able to do? Why don't you text those to us, 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG and then leave your comment uh, about this parenting issue. Well, coming up next, we are going to end the show with just insane craziness from the Internet. Now that Keith has gotten his hand on it, uh, this is just out of control. So. Uh, We are going to end the show with just some good laughs, good things we found from the Internet. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Happy Friday. We're going to pull this boat into the dock today. I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Maybe it was your hand motions. (laughs) That was me pulling a boat into a dock. We love to end every show with just uh, just some crazy things we found on the internet. And as we've been saying all week, we've turned this over to our producers. They are just giving us the stories, and we are reading them sight unseen, sound effects. We don't know them. Any of it. Uh, we don't know what to do. So, uh, Ian, it's going to start us off. You know, I think you should kick us off today. I kicked us off last time. I, I think you should start this segment that's, off, Brian. Here we go. That is very nice of you. Sight unseen. Very nice of you. World's sexiest koala... <laughs> Becomes a viral sensation. (laughs) The photo is fantastic. A koala in an Australian wildlife sanctuary has become an unlikely social media star after an image of the macho marsupial went viral. Rogue the koala struck the creepily suggestive pose. People report that photographer Ross Lung captured the image and posted it to his Instagram account, quickly turning the koala 
into a star. What's happening, hot stuff? That's fantastic. All right, again, sight unseen, New York. Women charged with arson after she tried to kill bedbugs with lighter. Oh, golly. A Wayne County woman is charged with arson after deputies say she tried to kill bedbugs with a lighter. The fire started at an apartment on Canal View Drive in Lyons on Sunday. Deputies say 39-year-old Jacqueline Lynch used a lighter to kill a bedbug after her uncle sprayed the house with alcohol. Lynch caught a mattress on fire and activated the sprinkler system. That is an unfortunate story. Oh, there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. <laughs> so weird. New York. New York City man who owns a 600-square-foot apartment receives $38 million Con Ed bill. Wow. Wow. A New York man... I knew it's, it's expensive to live in the city, <laughs> yeah, but come right. on. A New York man was stunned when he received a whopping Con Ed bill, one totaling almost $38 million. Yikes. When Tommy Straub uh, saw the astounding $38 million amount, he went to pay his bill online. He didn't worry he would have to pay the jaw-dropping amount. Instead, he decided to take a photo and share it on social media not to not only laugh at the bizarre situation, but to warn others. Mm-hmm. Hey, Con Ed, he wrote, I own a 600-square-foot apartment in Queens. I do not own the entirety of Manhattan Island. This is insane. <laughs> Fix it. In the end, the issue was resolved, and he just owed $77.14. Oh. Shocking. Positively shocking. <laughs> All right, North Carolina. After a $60 lottery win, Rally Man wins $1 million more. Hmm. Trying his luck again after winning $60 in the lottery, a Rally Man bought uh, a ticket worth $1 million. Richard Maynard claimed a $60 prize Monday at a Cary Quality Mart where he purchased two $10 million colossal cash tickets. One of them was worth $1 million. He always imagined winning the lottery, he said. Who hasn't? Everyone. And he chose the lump sum payout of $600,000, which, after taxes, he took home $424,000. Well, that's a story with a happy ending. I appreciate that. That's a nice story. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. (laughs) (laughs) Would you take the lump sum? Would you go? I go lump sum. Never. Nope. I'm not interested in the lump sum. Why? I guess it depends on the amount. I just I, I think the uh, the over the course of 20, 30 years, <laughs> this is so yeah. dweeby. I think it's just a more responsible way to do it. I feel like it protects me from <laughs> ah, from good. blowing it on something crazy. Because they do say the lump sum is better because you can then invest it, but we'd probably just spend it. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, okay, uh, let me just, let me just get back to you it. then. Let me get back to you. <laughs> Go win the lottery, and then we'll decide. <laughs> right, it. We'll discuss on the air. All right, Maryland estimated 20,000 bottles of ranch dressing cleaned up after truck crash last week. It's been a week since a tractor trailer carrying ranch dressing crashed into a uh, creek east of Clear Spring, but cleanup of the condiment has proved much more cumbersome huh. than initially thought. Clues with, uh, crews which cleaned up the initial crash site spent the past five days plucking an estimated 8,000 bottles of dressing oh, gosh. from along, I'm not even going to say the creek. Please say the it. Creek, please say it. Please the, say the creek the name. The little Kanakochikee <laughs> Creek after a nearby property owner reported the mess had drifted downstream. Oh, no. So down the stream comes ranch dressing. It's been a nightmare, but hopefully today we'll be able to wrap things up. Just a big thank you to everyone. Who helped clean up the ranch dressing? Wow. Bring me my ranch dressing hose. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. Last one out of Colorado. Meet America's first ever fast food robot employee. At the Good Times Burgers and Frozen Custard in Denver, Colorado, this robot, Holly, is working the morning rush. Holly is cutting the drive through time by 10 to 15 seconds. <laughs> That's it? That's, 
That feels like an unimpressive amount to Over me. time. Wow, Over yeah, time. it's true. For 20 years, uh, worker Orlina had been taking orders and serving up food. She says Holly is one of the most helpful employees on staff. How would you feel if you're a, <laughs> you're a human employee reading this article and she's giving props to the robot employee? That's funny. It's really fast and helps us with the speed a lot, she says. Well, more power to them and their robot employee. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop. Ever. Oh, that's so this good. is quickly turning into my favorite part of the show. Same here, man. That's good. Well, have a great weekend, man. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it, man. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Have a great weekend. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.